It isn't blindness to what people have been that causes transformation. It's the seeing in them someone that's never been seen before. Who he says I am is the real me, not who I've been up until now. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. So says A.W. Tozer. I've quoted that in so many different churches, at conferences, at camps, and in individual counseling and discipling sessions. But I have learned over the years that there is something before this statement that we often miss. You see, our belief about God is often shaped within the context of our attachments and relationships. Think about it. This is the part that no one in the church wants to talk about because it's so foreign. Here's what I mean. You can have great theology. Let's say you have a great church. Right, you preach the word, you have great theology, you have you believe the right things, you're doing you're out engaged in the community. I mean, it's great. And they're very welcoming. Your church is very welcoming to guests. And someone comes in who should be able to fit. They have all the right theology, the same theology that you do. And your welcome team did everything that they were supposed to do and love them and cared for them and showed love to them. But that person still doesn't feel connected. So they don't come back. And you might say, well, we don't know what they were looking for or, uh, you know, we don't know why this happens. Uh, Well, part of it is, is we can actually map it out on the brain now is that they don't feel connected to your group of people. They don't feel like they can identify. They don't feel like they, they belong there. And that's not a question of theology. That's a question of love. Now you might say, well, it is a question of theology because we're not loving people the way that we should love. Well, okay, I'll give you that. But what we fail to understand in church It's not just getting someone to agree intellectually to a proposition, but to internally sense love in action. This is why Jim's work is so important. When you combine neuroscience with a deep love for God and his word, you get Jim Wilder. Jim is doing a work that is transforming groups and organizations. They can map out on the brain now and see how spiritual formation occurs. That itself is phenomenal to me. I'm not saying that science has all the answers, but I am saying that science is revealing something that the scripture has already said and bringing some clarity to it. Things that I think the church often overlooks. And we can really delve into that sometime. But suffice to say that today we're talking about Jim's book, Escaping Enemy Mode. It's an important book because Jim defines spiritual maturity in a very fascinating and insightful way. He says that spiritual maturity is the ability to endure suffering well. It's not about what you know. It's not about how much theology that you have. It's it's not about how many classes you've taught or what positions you hold. No, 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 no. It's all about enduring suffering well. He even adds to that. This is where this book comes in. How do you love your enemies? Think about that. Seriously. How do you love your enemies? 
I think many of us love our enemies theoretically. Theoretically, theologically, but not practically. Not relationally. Not conversationally. How do we love our enemies? Jim brings this into light and makes us have to deal with it. And I've got a lot of questions, frankly. I have a lot of questions about this. But I think it's an important conversation and I think it's an important book because it's making us talk about really how do we love our enemies the way that God wants us to love our enemies. This conversation is not an easy one. It's not easy because it's delving into tough subjects. But I would encourage you to listen in. And I want you to know that even the conversation that I had with Jim can only happen because of people like you. We have these conversations so that you can be equipped to be the people that God wants you to be. So that you can step into that role and find your purpose in God. And fulfill the mission of God in your specific world. And part of that means learning how to love your enemies well. And I'm talking about getting beyond the rhetoric, getting beyond the headlines, getting beyond all of the things that our groups all around us are telling us what we should do and what we should not do. This is where I'm calling us back to what does the word of God say? Because our attachments do formulate how we view and understand the world, but they're not always to be the definitive ways that we define the world. We have to have a biblical worldview, right? But what does it mean to have a biblical worldview? Well, I'm getting off topic. We need to actually get back to Jim. And again, conversations like this can't happen without your direct involvement. And we laid out in November that we were at the end of the year giving campaign. We're trying to raise $50,000 so that we can continue to do this important work of watering souls around the world. Because if we don't water people, what happens? They start to die on the vine. And people that should be growing are actually dying. They're stepping away. They're becoming disheartened, feeling hopeless. And one of the most depressing things is being around a hopeless Christian. We want to be able to give hope, to take you back to the word of God, to show you what God is doing around the world and what he's done throughout time and what he wants to do with all of your life. That's our approach. But again, we can't do this without you. And we need your help to fulfill our end of the year giving campaign goals of $50,000. We've raised $25,000 already. And for those that have given, thank you. You rock my world. And I am so grateful for you. I can't even begin to tell you how grateful I am for you. But for those that are still wondering, and I'm talking about you right now, where you're at, in your car, at the gym, wherever you are right now, and listen to this show, we need your help. And here's an incentive. The first incentive should be self-explanatory. That's to water souls around the world. I mean, that, that itself should be the number one incentive, okay? But number two is a book from one of our publishing friends of some of the copies of books that have really made us happy over the past year. <laughs> happy. But they're books that have really just made an impact on us. And we want to be able to share that with you and give that to you. And if that weren't enough, there's more. And that is an NLT Illustrated Study Bible. Our friends at Tyndale, because they rock, have graciously given us the opportunity to give these study Bibles to you. For those who give $500 or more. And for those who want to give monthly, you actually get to participate in our inaugural courses on the Missio Holistic Approach coming in the first quarter. You are the first and privileged few 
to be able to be a part of that. So I want you to check that out. Go to apolloswater.org. Check that out. You will be glad that you did. But with that in mind, and without further ado, let's get to the second part of my conversation with the Jim Wilder as we discuss escaping enemy mode. Or to build other people up. And you give a great illustration from your time as being a lifeguard when someone's drowning and you go to help them, they'll immediately climb over you and push you down. But if you just go down and push them up, they'll be much better. I really enjoyed that illustration. The thing that I'm trying to understand and wrap my brain around, though, is how do you help people that don't want the help or radically disagree with your conception of what their bell self should be? Let's say that they formulated their identity around their sin. Um, and you could see that today in whatever group you want to pick up. Well, let's let's say LBGTQ. Let's Let's just throw that out there for right now. Or someone says, this is, I'm going to embrace my true identity and I'm, I'm a man, but I'm really a woman on the inside. How do you help them if they disagree with you? Because if you say to them, okay, I see this is who God really made you to be, is this person and you're pursuing this. And they said, stop persecuting me. You don't know. You're a bigot. How do you then love them in that moment and not go into enemy mode? Well, Again, we really can't prevent ourselves from going into enemy mode. The thing we can do is not stay there very long. And so, uh, yeah, I've yet to find anything that keeps me from getting pushed into enemy mode on a near daily basis. You know, someone decides to do something that upsets my feelings. I'll bop, I'll bop into enemy mode, but I hope, I hope I'm more like a beach ball. You can't keep me underwater for long. Is this the, in your anger, do not sin? Is that what we're kind of seeing there? Yeah, I think so. The other, the next thing I would say is that if you look at God's success record at telling this to people, he's got a huge failure rate. So I'm not going to assume I'm going to do better uh, at convincing people than God has done because he's got the most resources for doing it. And then Jesus himself had a near total failure rate. I mean, how many did did he actually pull out uh, when he was trying to rescue them versus the people who, you know, disliked what he was doing. Uh, so again, I'm thinking to myself, well, no matter how you do this, you're not going to succeed better than God and Jesus have so far going along. But there's an interesting thing. If you look at, I believe it's Isaiah 49, when God is talking to Messiah and Messiah responds, you know, my life has been, without form and void, using the same two Hebrew words that are used about creation at the beginning of time, that I've been a total failure at the mission God sent me to do. And God says to the Messiah, because you've been faithful at this task that you've totally failed at, I will give you the task of saving the world. So faithfulness is almost always measured by God and how well we persist in something that's never going to work. And so we're called to fail faithfulness, not to success. And the problem with the as if self, it always configures itself around what's going to work. How do I get success and become something that'll, that'll somehow work here? Uh, but now we're actually losing honor as we're going along. We're losing status because we have become secondary to whatever gets results. And you just mentioned earlier that 
that's when making other people lose and getting results and all those other things become infectious and want to get into us. So if all that God wants from us is that we remain who we are, and that is, regardless of whether you stay in enemy mode or not, I'm going to offer you a door to something different. And I'm going to get back there as fast as I can every time you you knock me out of uh, back into enemy mode. Actually, being getting back after enemy mode is probably a better example than staying out of it. If the rest of the world tends to be in enemy mode anyway, and they see us come out of it three, four, five, seven, twelve times, it begins to convey the message to them: Hey, there is a way out, out of it. How is it this person keeps coming back from enemy mode, which I see I clearly I put them in? But you know what happened after that, and so our our very recovery is actually good news. To other people, it says, oh, there might be a different way. This, the story, though, comes to mind is Schindler's List. You may have seen the movie. And there's a place in there where Schindler tries to convince the prison commander not to shoot people. He said, you'll feel better about yourself if you actually try to be take good care of these people instead of shoot them. And then the commander comes back. A little bit later, and you see him pull out his rifle and shoot somebody out the out the window, which to me is particularly poignant because I actually know a person who was in that camp at the time, uh, you know, under that commander, and, and and I know their family, and you know the effects of of this gets quite different uh, how it feels. I mean, Schindler's List is enough to blow your mind anyway, but then if you meet the people, in this case, the uh, the little boy that played the trumpet in the camp uh, and was that danger of being shot by the by that commander. You know, you, you see that here are people who are trying hard to remain who they were meant to be and dealing with people that are not going to listen to you. But the, the heroic part of it, the part that makes us the kinds of people that God wants us to be, the reason why the commander is not the hero of the story is because... He got results. He stayed in enemy mode. And, and we are to be a, a witness that that's not the way we should live. Not necessarily because it's always going to work, which is sobering. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. What do we do and how do we view Jesus turning over the tables? Because I would say he's in enemy mode. Am yeah. I wrong there? 
I'm prepared to say you were, yeah. Uh, the question <laughs> is... Um, <laughs> okay, go you ahead set, tell you me. You set that one up, right? I did. Yeah. I, well, no, but for I'll one, go for one, Yeah, for one thing, it, people assume that if someone is angry, they're always going to be in enemy mode. And first of all, that's not true. Uh, Jesus uh, is only recorded as being angry once. And the the word uh, used there, I believe, is uh, orge. Now, having nothing to do with orgy, everybody goes, is it related to that? No, no, it's, it has to do with every other case in the New Testament where that word is used. People are so angry that they're trying to kill somebody. So he's in the synagogue with a man with a withered hand, and he looks around at the lack of faith, and he gets so furious he has to heal the guy. So being furious led in Jesus' case to healing the guy. Now, if he'd looked around and, and the room was full of faith and everybody was waiting to see what God would have done, what would Jesus have done then? I think he would have healed the guy. Yeah. Right. So he does exactly the same thing when angry that he would have done if he had been joyful. Uh, and so it's really quite possible to be angry and and not sin. It's just that we haven't seen very much of it right there. What then is the difference? What's the difference between enemy mode and anger then? Well, anger is actually the, the same chemistry in your brain as fear is. And the difference is that in fear, there's a threat that you can get away from. And in anger, there's a fear that you actually, uh, a threat that you actually have to stop. Now, the question is, do you stop that threat in the least harmful way? And Jesus sees a threat to his father's house when he goes in and people have made it a way to make a profit. Yeah. Now, did he go in saying, you know, I'm going to do as much harm to these people as possible? You know, and, and if you get the story of his making a mini whip and chasing the, you know, the offerings, the, the birds and the other things around the the temple yard with his mini whip. And it's really interesting. Probably micro whip would be the best way to do it. All the children are laughing. Now, when an adult has gone into a full on fury, children don't laugh. You know, they're terrified by the whole thing, but they just thought the most comic thing they ever saw was Jesus's mini whip chasing animals around the courtyard. So we're not talking about somebody who says, I'm going to destroy everybody. In fact, Jesus himself said, I haven't come to destroy, right? And so he would have totally forgotten who he was if he was finding the best way to destroy things. He's just now doing something to defend his father's house and is disruptive. But through it, he's also potentially offering people a different point of view. Like, this is now what my father's house is about. Does he want people to see that point of view, or does he just simply want them to know that they're in line for judgment, that's all there is going on? In fact, Jesus talks a great deal about hell, but is that because he's interested in punishing people, or is he interested in warning them that, you know, this is a really bad path to go down? You know, you do a really good job. If you're trying just to protect yourselves, this isn't the way to do it. So again, how do you read the text? becomes important. He's definitely trying to stop something, but is he trying to cause harm to people? And somehow involves the eyes with which you approach the text, because the text could be read either way. 
and frequently is. So which way do you read the text now? Well, this is for you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'd have to really think about it. I, I had not thought of it until we just got into this conversation. So I, I need to think about it, think about it a little bit. Because if we if this conversation simply involves in pe- people rethinking a few things, I think we'll all move ahead. So yeah, I, I, I appreciate and, well, that response. But I mean, I think that as I'm exploring this, because it is such a new, I mean, on one level, it's a new concept, but it's not. As you mentioned, love your enemies is, I mean, that's the oldest time. We go back mm-hmm. to Jesus saying, love your enemies. And that's something that I think many of us are like, yeah, 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 yeah. But <laughs> it'll never work. But yeah, like, what does that really look like? Does that mean that we're all just going to join hands and sing Kumbaya around the fire? And that's not what what Jesus is talking about. But then that leads to a whole bunch of questions about military and war. And yet we do see Jesus when he's approached or, or John the Baptist, when he's approached by soldiers and he's, they said, what do we need to do? And he says, well, basically don't do anything that you're not supposed to do. <laughs> you know, you're, you do your job as a soldier, but don't go beyond that. Don't be a bully. Don't beat people up, but you still have to do that, do your job. And then Romans 13, where he who bears the sword doesn't bear so in vain. Uh, so there's this idea of that. So I'm looking at that going, okay, how does that fit together? How do we understand this enemy mode? And that again is in one sense that we're talking about it in a military law enforcement idea. Whereas most of us don't live there where we live is in the everyday. We live on the online. We live Facebook and all these different inter, you know, interactions that we have with our, our family, our coworkers, our classmates. And in the political sphere, we see it being played out in posts and things like that. And with our spouses, I mean, this really has uh, application in marriage. I just want to fight for a cause. If I get to know my purpose, I don't know if I'll like it or not God, I know that you're the answer when I'm searching my mind, I forgot When I'm walking through the fire, I'll just look toward the light when it's high You mentioned a lot about attachment. There's a, an example that you give of having someone, and I am not remember what scientist or group it was, they had brought in a picture of someone they hated and they did a study of what the brain did, but it was also and correct me if I'm wrong and I'm, I'm misremembering, but there's something that happened in the brain. That's also the same thing that happened with someone they loved as well as someone they hated the same part of the brains fired up. Is that right? Yeah. The very strange profile that these English researchers found is that the what lights up when you hate somebody is the same as what lights up pretty much when you fall in love. So it's like, whoa, there's a peculiar overlap. And what is that overlap? Well, because you sense a very close connection to the person, you're thinking about how you want to interact with them in both cases. They fire up a lot of emotions for you when you're thinking about them. And you think about the case of David's son who ends up uh, raping his sister Tamar, the very things that made him feel in love ahead of time after the rape were the same things that made her, him hate her. In fact, the Old Testament word that says the reason why incest is a sin is because it's hesed, it's attachment, and it's forming an attachment that you can't actually live with. And so 
what happens if we're attached to somebody who our mind tells us is not life-giving? All of a sudden, we're in a hole, you know, we're tethered to trouble, we're tethered to pain, we're to, you know, you find out you're, you know, one of the worst things to find out is, if, for instance, you're somebody that you're connected with as a serial killer. Like, oh, no, that's terrible. How do I disconnect from this? And so this hatred is, I, I'm tethered to, I'm connected to somebody who I feel is going to be life-taking instead of life-giving. And now how do I deal with that in very distressing attachment to someone else? And if it weren't for that, a lot of abuse, uh, you know, incest and molesting, all those other things wouldn't be as painful as they are, except that now you're connected or tethered to somebody who's destroying your life instead of someone who's building your life. Uh, so these are very intensely felt in, in, in our brains and bodies and consequently can become the most destructive forces as human beings. If you, if you look at every time you hear a, a report of a sudden mass shooting, you find the story almost always traces back to some kind of bad attachment. You know, they went in and shot up the beauty shop because the, the woman they were in love with, they thought was cheating on them. And so, I mean, these are the kinds of stories that, are, you know, go behind the most hideous crimes that we're listening to. And so, again, if you mess with my attachments, one way, it makes me probably the most dangerous person I can be. And if we mess with my attachments the other way and say, you know, now instead of trying to make you lose, I intend to share whatever suffering you go through as my own. It makes us the people that can overcome enemy mode because we're going to share each other's pain, even if it's pain I produced. And one of the things we found with domestic violence is if the, whoever was behind the violence would fully share and experience the pain they had produced. It was a huge disincentive to them ever doing that again. It really, you know, I, I can't hurt you if I intend to feel and share with you all of the hurt that I produced. My brain goes, hey, that's a dumb plan. Don't go there. I was at a breakfast with a professor whose parents had been in the concentration camps. He was not a Christian and we got into a discussion and he said, next time you get into a fight with your wife, don't say, I'm sorry. And I thought, well, that doesn't work. <laughs> he said, instead of saying you're sorry, describe to her what your action did to her. The more I thought about it, I decided to try it. And I said, you know, I recognize that my words were demeaning. It made you feel less. She felt heard. And I was entering into that pain is what I was and I was identifying with it. So when we understand how to identify with another's pain in that attachment, and, and you're saying that attachment has, has a power. It, say that again. Shared life. Shared life. The attachment is a shared life. What do you mean by that? When I'm attached to you, the things that keep you alive, keep me alive. The things that are killing you are killing me. It's an intention to, to share uh you know, our life experience together. So our lives are really connected in some significantly important way. That's why we attach to the people who feed us. That's the primary mechanism for it. The people who share our feelings, we attach to them as well. So again, you're saying, I'm going to share your experience, whether it's a hard one or a good one. And so whatever happens to your life influences, affects my life significantly, deeply, 
And that shared experience is, is what attachment is about. If, it, if a place you should have more of an attachment, it should be within your immediate family, but even in the church. And that in some ways forms its own, I don't want to say supersedes, but it, I mean, spiritually brings a connection that has not been there before. How do we get people to see and acknowledge that? Because what most people think is, I want to get them to Jesus, get them to embrace Jesus, get them to receive Jesus, and that's it. It's all I needed to do. And then we go into what Marcus Warner calls the ABCs, academic training, behavior modification, church activities. But what you're saying is, is that there's so much more that's intricate, that's there relationally and our attachment, how we go about community, even as we've talked previously about singing to one another. There's that idea about it and that embodiment aspect. Knowing that attachment and embodiment plays such a huge, has such a huge role in our formation, especially going into enemy mode. How do we help other people see the power of attachment and the necessity of embodiment? Well, to me, the practical question, you know, is that we should tell them about the things that have changed our own lives. The only thing that really has a real impact on other people is sharing the things that are changing us. And the, the problem that typical church has is we're actually sharing whether we have similar beliefs or not. And so we talk about often as something like my faith community, which are the people, other people believe the same things I do. There's nothing particularly about having the similar beliefs that's going to make any attachment between us. It's like, oh, that's good. I'm glad you believe those things too. You know, it might make for some interesting conversation. Somebody comes along and says to me, you know, I know a lot about the brain. Uh, I go, I'll look at them like, okay, well, that doesn't make us kin. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, might even make us antagonists for all I know. So the same thing happens in church. So we all believe the same thing. Which, in many ways, I think summarize the American church. It's good to be good and nice to be nice would be this the the main core of our relational beliefs. But what kind of attachment does that produce? And the answer is almost nothing. So how are we going to actually form an attachment with other people? And that is we are going to have to care about the life that's growing inside them and do something to nurture that which is probably closer to what it means to make disciples. But if we're just making disciples, means we're going to teach other people our core beliefs. We've not invested in their life particularly. We just made sure they've got the right core beliefs, which go into the non-relational part of our brain. That doesn't really cause much transformation. But if I'm going to share with you the struggles you have trying to be a Christian, and trying to experience God when you're upset, which of course we don't do because we're all sitting there looking at the front and the band is pretty good. And you know, we feel like that was a powerful experience, which by itself doesn't particularly attach us to anybody, although we might like the band. You know, we're gonna share what makes it, what are the times that you really have to focus, let's say it's probably the best word, focus in order to find out what is, where's God and what is he doing right now? that sort of transcendent view of of what's happening. In those moments, then we weep with those that weep, we rejoice with those that are rejoicing. We're actually going to build some connection with each other in which our even our minds are going to care about what's happening to you. You know, I want to see you again and 
we're getting closer to what Paul uses as his test for uh, having good theology. He said, you know, when I could stand it no longer, we've been apart too long. I sent Timothy to find out how you were doing. And when I heard the great affection you had for me, I knew your faith was good. So that's his theological test for people who have not apostatized. They have great affection for him. Tests that we've, I don't remember having ever seen used uh, in my entire, you know, 70 years being around the church. The love that people have for one another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I knew a woman name was Jezebel. She was a wild one, a wild one. She said, come on, we could have fun. And then she wanted me to go. She couldn't stand getting too close. Who I'll meet next? Who among them I will love best? Well, that depends upon the context, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Churches are doing the bees. Budgets, buildings, bodies. They're just trying to keep attendance. They're investing everything into the Sunday morning experience. If they have this idea of smaller community, they might go into small groups. How does this change that approach? Well, I can clearly say I don't have the answers to that, but I do have an observation or two. And that is that right here above my uh, right ear, there's a little spot in my brain. It has no particular name, but it's well mapped out by neuroscientists. And unless that part of my brain is active, I won't change my views or opinions at all. And it gets active when I'm upset by something that doesn't add up for me. So the ba- the basic bottom line is until your brain is upset, you won't change your point of view. If people who are happy with the way things are working are not going to listen to anything else at all. But when things aren't working, and the interesting thing right now is if you look at Christendom, maybe because it's 500 years since the Reformation or whatever else it might be, there's a bit of a meltdown going. The whole, uh, you know, the whole COVID thing, the whole church, the models that we're using are not working very well. And there's a huge number of people leaving the church, refers to themselves often as the ones that are done, you know, that we're done with this. There's children leaving the church in huge numbers. Uh, there's pastors burning out at outrageous rates. There's a lot of upset out there. And so people are now listening for, you know, what is making a difference? Who are the people that are alive? Who are the people that are not afraid of our, of our future? And, and part of this, I, you know, just to say historically over the last 50 years, we sort of set it, ourselves up for this in the evangelical world by Talking about the late great planet Earth, uh, there was a huge belief uh, 40 years back that we were the last generation. And so investing into relationships in the future was a waste of time because if we could just get the Bible translated and get everybody that we needed to to make a decision real fast, that would bring back Jesus and he'd do it before the year 2000. And of course, the date keeps shifting uh, because he's not back. You know, all of a sudden we're saying, okay, what we've got now is not sustainable. And we have intentionally not been, as evangelicals, building anything sustainable for 40 years. 
So there's a crisis happening, and we can see the evidence of it all around. And so people are asking the question, is there more to it than that? And to me, the nice thing that brain science says is that, that human beings are essentially, they're from their brain on up, relational creatures who need to be part of a group identity that's greater than them and showing them who they really are. And our minds are designed to find a mind greater than us and copy from that the, the, our true identities. Does that have any overlap with what Christianity is about or what Jesus was talking about? And that's the dialogue I'm very interested in being in the middle of. Because if so, our Christian church has not been doing that. We've been getting people to understand the basic beliefs and make some decisions, which even in the, you know, the comments by such great evangelists as Billy Graham, very distressed by the fact that only five to seven of the percent of the people that made decisions went around to show any kind of lasting transformation or even engagement. And the, you know, the thing that really troubled him was, you know, we've got to get better yield than that. So, you know, to be part of that discussion is to talk about what is actually changing your life. And the fun thing about talking about it from a neurological point of view is it's getting people interested in, you know, I've never thought about how to get my brain involved in this change. You know, I believe the right things and that hasn't worked. I've tried to use willpower harder and that's worked only poorly and hasn't convinced my kids of anything. So. Is there actually something that would happen if we took the most powerful mechanism in the brain, which is attachment to uh, the people who give us life that searches for a mind greater than ours? And if we implemented that as the way that we develop connections with each other and with God, and if that actually worked, you know, how would we help each other do it better? And I, the people that I find most alive are the ones at this point that are engaged in that discussion. They seem to not be so bothered by the things that people disagree about. What bothers them? When we don't care, where there's no compassion, when we're not sharing life with other people, we're just trying to get results. That always distresses them. Uh, they've got all kinds of ways of explaining it. Some are social justice, some are, are uh, you know, deep discipleship people, some are holiness people. There's all kinds of different beliefs that go with that. But the distress comes from the fact that we're not sharing lives that are changing. Is this what Bonhoeffer was talking about when he was talking about like real community? I would have to say so, yeah. Mm -hmm. I like how Russell Moore put it after the SBC scandal basically came out about the sexual abuse. And he might have actually said it before that, but it's been during some of these difficult times where he said that the young people of this world, it's not that they don't believe what's what's being, it, it's that they're recognizing that the church doesn't believe it. Because if it's not going down into that deep level, which is what our missio holistic approach is about, is really seeing the, the depth of that transformation occur within the person and that, it, I mean, the, the spirit of God is, it's spirit wrought, but it's working along the lines, we're seeing how the spirit has been working along the lines, using the brain and how God has wired it. So it's not that the word of God, when people say that, oh, you don't need to have culture to interpret the word, there, there's truth and there's also not truth. Meaning that it's not that you can't see or experience transformation without understanding this stuff. You, you don't need to understand it. Transformation can occur. But 
the fuller flavor of it. I, I like to tell people it's like I can see in a color television what's happening, but I can see in 5K when I understand there's a lot more that's involved. I, it's enhanced. There's a greater understanding of it. And you can be much more intentional and not just theoretical. And people are arguing past one another that when you can actually see it, then you can go, okay, well, this is no longer theory. We can actually map it out. We don't know how or God, why God has done it this way, but this is how he's done it. And I think there's some some comfort in that. Seeing then that attachment and in that relational aspect, how do we help facilitate that identity of this is who we are? Because we define ourselves in one of two ways, I think. And correct me if I'm wrong. This is who I am, where we liken ourselves to someone that we want to say, I'm like Tim Keller. Let's say that. But we also define ourselves by who we're against. We say, this is who I'm like, this is who I'm against. And when we don't have that, people don't know what to do because they don't know how to categorize it. Our brains are designed to categorize. Am I wrong in stating that? Yeah, no, that's how we try to understand it. There's two problems with that formulation. One is what you just described runs at conscious speed, which is five times per second, and identity runs at uh, much faster speed, which is six times per second. Uh, Actually, that amounts to 12 calculations every second because it's interactive. And so we're trying to define ourselves by how we explain other people rather than whose mind we're actually trying to copy. Because our brains can't perceive ourselves directly. We have to see the identity centers are mirror neurons. They, they see who I am based on how you see me. Part of it is we're trying to figure out what's the right mirror for looking at me. And a mirror that doesn't understand me is a, is a very bad mirror to try to try to is, see ourselves in. Is this the, <laughs> I have this picture of my mother in my head. I can't imagine what she would think of me right now. Is mm-hmm. that what we're doing? Cause we, we do care what other people think about us. Yes. Exactly. Completely. Cause that yeah. helps us define who we are. If exactly. we know how they look at us, mm-hmm. that helps shape who we are. Yeah. So Hebrews 12 says a very interesting thing. He said, uh, says, Jesus looked away from human beings while he was being crucified to look at heaven and see how heaven sees him. And so this is, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, we have people who are actually looking at us. And St. John, when he goes to heaven, describes that the floor of heaven as being like the sea of glass, a great glass portal with which they could look down on earth and see what's going on down there. So. If we're being seen by this great cloud of witnesses, who do they see when they're looking at us? And Ephesians 2.10 says that we're God's God's workers redeemed in Christ to do the works that God prepared ahead of time that we should do them. So there's actually things that would be very much like me to do if I could see what that was. And I would, you know, I would actually be developing this identity that was especially scripted to fit me. That's what Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is life. light. What I'm asking you to do is only what you're created for. And so he says, you know, that's why you don't get too excited about what you're doing. They were just tumble servants for just doing what we were created for. That kind of harmony is, is missing from most of us because we're missing the eyes of heaven looking at us and saying, yeah, I know you know how, well, let's, Take Jesus and Judas, right? So Judas was a thief. So what did Jesus make him in the group? The treasurer. 
<laughs> right, exactly. Because you can recognize a treasure. And as I see you, you'd be guardian of the treasure. But as you understand yourself, you're the thief of the treasure. And so Jesus gives him this a, a chance to move into who he was designed to be. But Judas of the bunch doesn't take it. And that's, a, I think, what God is doing with all of us. I see in you somebody, Paul says, you're previous time thieves and, and robbers and all kinds of things. But that's when God looked at you, that's not who he saw. So this eyes of heaven that are looking at us, you know, this is, this is an active process. This is how Jesus gets through his crucifixion. This is how we get through times of trouble. This is what our brain needs. It needs to see what those eyes of heaven are seeing. And we need to see that reflected in our group identity. So when people look at us, they go, yeah, you know what? You're pretty good at cursing, but God made you actually to give blessings. And your brain will say, well, I've never done that. And so that's completely unfamiliar to me. But when God looks at us as well, that wasn't the works I prepared ahead of time for you. You know, that's that you won't find your true self doing that. So the mirror we're actually told to look at is that if we're trying to find, see our true self, we should look at Jesus as actually the best example of what our true selves would look like. Uh, we would be very variations on that because we don't have all the elements he had, probably. Cumulatively, we would be, I mean, between you and me and everybody uh, else yeah, that's a believer. Yeah. Uh, but we're not looking for that for each other. We're actually looking for what other people are doing wrong. And so Paul tells Titus, teach the older women not to be diabolos, not to be devils, which look at other people and say, who you're, what you're doing wrong is the true self. But to be live according to the spirit, look at other people and go, you know, who you are in the spirit is your true self. Your brain just doesn't know how to do that yet. And we're going to help you find it and live that way. And, you know, it's going to be somebody you've never been before. And whenever I have people do that for me or I have a chance to do that for them, an attachment builds between us. It's like I want to go back and see the one. Kind of interesting. I had a lady who had no belief in God at all. She came in to see me as a counselor and said, you know, uh, well, what I do is I pose in the nude. So I'd love to swap these uh, nude pictures of me for counseling experience, you know, because I don't have a lot of cash. <laughs> it was an interesting offer right there because she, <laughs> she, she knows what men are into, right? I mean, we decided on a different form of payment. <laughs> and we never talked about God. Uh, that's a secular person coming in for counseling. Uh, eventually, she re she recovered rather nicely, whatever she was suffering from. And I told her, "Well, okay, this is good. You know, you've graduated essentially. Now you get out of your life." And she looked at me and she said, "Yeah, I know, but where else would I come to see how God sees me in the world?" And that was very touching because the first time God had ever passed her lips. But suppose that's what we're here for. To show so oh wow so that's radical so so basically you're saying that we are here to help the world see how God views them yeah which means uh, we're when Jesus says you'll be my witnesses now witness in that point didn't mean people who are theologically astute it meant people who could see what God sees see where God is in the middle of this. And in the, the Last Supper, Jesus says to the disciples, from now on, people will not be able to see me. Only those that love me, who have an attachment to me, will be able to see me. And this uh, 
alarms the other Judas, not Iscariot. How's this going to be? You know, how can we see you and other people can't? But maybe that's what we are. We're doing. We're witnesses. We see in the world what God sees, but other people can't see. In doing evangelism, are we asking people to? Because we we want to attach to Jesus. We want to be these witnesses for Him. Are we then showing other people that God loves them? But we're also asking them to abandon their sinful identities. Yeah, well, let's talk about the story of the first missionary, which Jesus comes into the Samaritan town at noon. And uh, so he sends his 12 missionaries into town and they come back with McDonald's or whatever they came back with. But he talks to the one woman from the town and she runs into town and tells, come and meet the man that told me everything I ever did. Must this not be the Messiah? Because he saw something else in her, not because he didn't see everything she'd ever done, but he saw a missionary in her. And she brought the whole town to them, and Jesus couldn't get out of town for days. You know, isn't that what he wanted when he sent the 12 in? Because he said, this is what I feed on. This is life. This is, you know, this is what we're looking at. And so... Yeah, when we're evangelism, is it not to go and tell other people God sees a child of God in you, where you've only seen your status coming from this lowly thing, or whatever you perform well, or a status that you can never overcome because of what you've what all you've done. So it isn't blindness to what people have been that causes transformation. It's the seeing in them someone that's never been seen before. Someone who would be a child of God on this hill or any hill, uh, because you uh, you worship God in your heart and you say, "Yeah, who He says I am is the real me, not who I've been up until now." That that I would think is metanoia, seeing things a new way, or as it's sometimes translated, repent. So many. hope that God does with this book? My hope is sort of going crazy, and that is that one-fourth of the human being, one-fifth of the human beings on this planet claim to be Christians, which means that if the simple thing that God has asked all Christians to do, which is to love your enemies, we would only have to love four enemies in order to permeate the planet with seeing people the way that God sees them which doesn't seem insurmountable as, as a task. But to tell people that they, it's actually a possibility, there are ways that we can learn this, to love our enemies by seeing in them the person that God's creating. Now, of course, we are just talking about Samaritans. They were seen as enemies by the uh, Jewish population at the time. So we're looking at the people who don't think we, as Christians, could be we could actually see something good in them, something eternal, something valuable. And in fact, if anything, we're sort of expected to be the ones who are critical of other people. And uh, as Paul would call them, Diabolos will tell them everything that's wrong with them, and that's their true self. There's no blessing in that. 
the, uh, and so I'm trying to say, you know, hey, as Christians, what would happen if we were to actually look at other people and see in them what God wants to bring out and sort of smile on that, rain on that a little bit? We actually have the numbers, if we did that, to influence the world. And the other thing is that when you look at the brain, beliefs are not what create hate. Beliefs are only the way that hating people gather each other. So what if we used our beliefs to gather people to uh, love people who think they're God's enemies and show them a better way? It's always been my standard. If I can find one person who actually read the book and it started working for them, that would make the book worth writing. So while I want to aim this at everybody who ever claimed to be a Christian and everyone who ran for president in the U.S. since I've been around claimed to be one, uh, you know, could we not start looking for that as that's what a Christian leader should look like, you know, and that's what we should be leading the way on. Uh, and if a couple of people start doing that, I'll be more than thrilled that I wrote the book. But if we start a discussion that's even more widespread than that, and now it goes beyond my hopes and dreams for the book. So what I like about you is you're thinking these things over. You know, you're helping other people have the chance to, to think things over as well. And uh, I think if God helps us think, we'll think some new things. And I think that's a, a really necessary word for our time. I mean, I have a lot of questions. I still have a lot of questions from the book for sure. And I, I wish we had more time to really delve into more of them, but maybe we have to do that another time. Yeah, blessings to you and all your listeners. What a conversation. My brain's still swimming and spinning. There's so much about neuroscience that's bringing out stuff that's in the scripture that's already been there and showing us the proper emphasis on things. It's not that it's contradicting anything. It doesn't contradict anything at all. It's, it's my contention that when science is done right, it does nothing but support the word of God. And that just makes me marvel all the more. And I hope it does to you as well. It just makes you marvel and give praise to God, this God who created science. You know, sometimes we pit science against God, and we shouldn't do that because science, when done properly, is going to do nothing but support and show who God is in an even greater fashion than we sometimes realize. Science is growing, always learning. And what I struggle with science sometimes is when we try to make these different theories that we throw out in our world today as established fact and set it up against the scripture. Because theories are always changing. The more that we learn, the more that the scripture is supported, not contradicted. Science is always in an ebb and flow. We're always learning more. We're always growing. That's its job. It's to learn, to test, to grow to establish. And all theories have to be thrown really at the feet of God because God created all things and all truth is God's truth. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. I hope this conversation today helps you grow. I would really encourage you to get the book. And you know how you can get the book? Donate to Apollos Water, become a partner with us, and I will send you a copy of Escaping Enemy Mode. Kid you not. I've got copies I'm looking at right now. I would love to be able to send you. Go online to apolloswatered.org. Click the support us button. And I would say whatever amount, but no, it's got to be at least $50. And I will send that to you right away.
And remember, if you give $500 or more, you'll be able to get the NLT Illustrated Study Bible. We've had many people already receive them. They love them. And I want to be able to get one to you as well. So without further ado, that's it for today. I hope and pray that you have a Merry Christmas. I do want to thank our Apollos Water team for making this dream a reality. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And the 